All right, and hello and welcome to another episode of the USA Powerlifting Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Carrillo, and today I'm joined by everyone's favorite guest, our president, Larry Maley. How's it going, Larry? So far, so good. Yeah, I know you're up there in Alaska enjoying uh, the beautiful summers they have to offer. I'm here stuck in Phoenix on a 116-degree day. Uh, We are on opposite ends of the world, but uh, it is good to reunite with you after some time. I know you've been working really hard on uh, things this first half of the year. You know, now as we're looking forward to uh, the back half of the year, you know, I want to start off by, you know, what's on the top of our mind? Because you and I haven't connected in in quite a while. So I know you've been working on things and you probably have some some exciting news to share. But, you know, my perspective this year has been as a meet director and a state chair here in Arizona. So I definitely have different things on my mind from you. So what is on the top of your mind right right now in terms of USA powerlifting and the sport itself? Well, in a lot of ways, Ryan, we're just really, I mean, the pandemic is over, but um, the impact of the pandemic we're still feeling and the the way it's impacted us is the changes in our national meet schedule. Obviously this year looked very different than it's going to look next year. And so the thing that we're really working on is re-implementing what looks like a, a rational strategy post-pandemic. Um, and next year, our, as I said, our national meet schedule will look different. Um, our, our pro meet schedule will look somewhat different as well. So um, those are the things that we're working on kind of behind the scenes here. And, and uh, we're, we're looking to finalize the national meets for next year. Some are pretty much locked. Some are a little bit up in the air yet. Um, and we're looking to development of our international system. Um, it's, it's coming along swimmingly, slow but steady. Um, we've had a great deal of individual interest in, in a number of countries as well, and the one just today. Um, so um, that's something we're looking at as well. Um, and a new one just today. Can you can you give us a little hint? Maybe what hemisphere it's in? Asia. Awesome. That's exciting. Uh, so, yeah, you, you talked about the new national schedule, and, and we obviously got a taste of that in the recent press release. I got really excited reading about that because it made me feel like we were approaching the schedule from like a true sports standpoint, right? We, we we're finding seasonality and trying to give people as much opportunity to compete at all of the different levels that we now have. Was that the, the thought behind structuring the schedule in this new way? It, it was, and it was uh, a look at sort of distributing things across the year. Um, obviously this year, everything was loaded into the front half of the year um, by necessity. And that was really driven by venues um, and as I said, we were recovering from the pandemic. And one of the things we found was as, as we look for venues and we need fairly sizable ones, but we need them for a long time. Um, everybody else was doing the same thing. So our options were really limited in terms of being able to secure something as long as we needed it. And, and obviously someplace that people wanted to go. So next year, our options are greater. We're looking at it, you know, with a longer lens. And still looking at places that people want to go and places that are unique, but um, but we're also we have the latitude to to shop across the year. Um, yeah, 
what what's the short list right now you guys are looking at can you share that like uh maybe top two or three locations you're thinking of for for raw or open nationals well we're we're looking at putting national meets into the ubu meets um to, wow. to, to give them their own um i guess audience and venue and to be similar in some ways to the arnold where there are other things going on and other things for people to do. Um, we're, we're looking at nationals in Memphis. Um, still tying, oh, wow, up, that's cool. tying up to details. And the, excuse me, the high school nationals will be in Myrtle beach as, as has been announced. Um, and we're looking for um, venues for collegiates in the Texas area. Um, Texas is pretty locked up, so um, it may not pan out, but that's what the collegiate committee would like. And we'd like to go there, too. Um, having visited there for um, some professional meetings are really some nice places to go and um, nice downtowns and um, activities for people and families. And so we'd like to go there if we're able. Um, and that's sort of what we're thinking at this moment. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And like, like you've said, the world is bouncing back from COVID and on the business side, you know, we're definitely seeing all of the events from pre 2020 are now up. Um, things that were canceled for multiple years, you know, we've been away for three years basically. And so there's a lot of pent up desire to get back to these networking events, these professional organizations who have been remote. So demand is definitely up at these uh, highly sought after locations. And that's what we're going after, right? We're not trying to be in a small scale place, you know, we want to be at the convention centers. We want to be in the nice hotels with lots to do because that's, we know that's what people want. We're not trying to have events in, in BFE, you know, we want to have them in Dallas and Austin and San Antonio and Houston. Um, so that's great to hear. Yep, exactly. That, that was one of the messages before the pandemic that people gave us. We want to go places that are fun and we don't want to go to the same places all the time. Um, you know, it's obviously yeah, easier for us to go to the same place because we know what it's like, but. I'd say you've done that. I mean, we've done that, right? We had Daytona one year. We had Vegas. We're bouncing around the country to these new new events uh, and, or sorry, these new places that people can bring their family to and have a lot more going on. So that's great. Um, as, as far as what's on the top of my mind, you know. Uh, I, I've stopped competing for the foreseeable future and I've transitioned into a, a leadership role and trying to give back to this community. And uh, for those of you that don't know, I became the state chair here in Arizona earlier this year, directed a meet. I now have the, the final UBU meet on the schedule I'm directing here in two weeks here in Arizona. Uh, lots of people coming out. We have a pro competing. Um, so, so I am coming from the perspective of, of meet director and uh, what I'm seeing is more demand than ever for our brand of powerlifting. Um, the people contacting me, they're excited. They want to compete. You know, they want to set records. They all have their eyes on pro series or nationals. And I think that's really positive. But on the flip side, I have to be honest, Larry, it's been eating me up. And I think this is a good form to talk about it is uh, the volunteerism in our sport has declined. Um, and it eats me up because when I came into the sport in 2009, you know, you gave back, you volunteered, you became a state referee as soon as possible. You spotted and loaded, 
you know, you had your training groups and even if you weren't lifting, you'd show up to the gym for someone's heavy squat day and help that that's the spirit of our sport, you know, and I have not seen that passion or commitment to volunteerism as a, a meet director or state chair in a long time. And, and it kind of breaks my heart. What are your thoughts when I say that? Are, do you agree? I mean, from the national level, we tend to have the same people refereeing. We tend to have the same people volunteering. And that's just not sustainable. And so I want to bring attention to it because long term, it's a problem. We want to continue to grow and, and have a platform for you to compete. You know, we got to volunteer and volunteer. Volunteering looks a lot different today than it did when I started. You know, I'm paying my volunteers a lot of money to come out. I'm flying two people out from Texas. Like when I first started, you're lucky if you got a meal and that was okay. That was just the spirit. So what are your thoughts when I talk about the volunteer issue uh, right now? Well, I think the, the biggest hole probably in volunteerism is at the local level. And, and I think there are a variety of factors involved in that. Um, one is that um, there are a lot of new people out here, basically. And, and so um, powerlifting by its very nature um, is a sport where it, the turnover is rel- relatively rapid. Um, and, and I would contrast that with weightlifting where people tend to come and stay for a long time. So for whatever reason, our, our community involvement is different. Um, and our, our sort of spirit of, of pitching into the organization is different at the national level, our, our national events. Um, I think the volunteerism has been good and, and expanding, um, in terms of further testing of national referees and and consistent um, other assistance of volunteering, but it, it doesn't necessarily translate down to the local level. And one of the difficulties I think at the local level um, is that we're really so big now, and and so we have we have states that have twenty five meets in them a year, um, and and that's a huge infrastructure draw. And for every powerlifting meet. Um, at least a dozen and sometimes as many as 40 or 50 volunteers are required. And, and you just can't get them to go to 15 meets a year. It's just not possible. So it, it's a challenge and the challenge is expanding that pool of, of people who will just come and help um, it, to be broader. Yeah. You can only go to the well so many times. Uh, speaking of, just the volume of people we've we've set a record this year for membership haven't we or we're on pace we're ahead of pace actually we've been consistently up virtually every month this year we're just a little bit under twenty thousand members at the moment um as you'll recall pre-covid our our high was just under 21 yep um and we got five months five months to go um so yeah that's great to hear and I, I, I like we're well ahead and, and we're about equivalent in terms of sanctions for the year, right around 400, just a little under 400. So 400 USA powerlifting events, over 20,000 members on pace to, uh, to break records. So for any of the doubters listening, I want you to hear those numbers because people like to go to on social media and throw shade at us a lot. We're an easy target. That's what happens when you're at the top, you know? Um, and specifically Ryan Lapidat at King of the Lifts. And I'm going to call him out by name because he did this multiple times and trying to drag us down. And 
talked about how our membership was decreasing and other organizations were, you know, uh, taking market share. It's simply not true. Um, our membership numbers are shared every year at our NGB. And so if you pay attention, we publicly share them. We just publicly shared it again. You can't base your data off of open powerlifting. It's imperfect. And you also didn't even examine the numbers correctly. So uh, I want to be clear because it's a point of contention for me. If you're going to make a claim uh, based on data, you need to have valid data and have vetted it. Uh, 20,000 members really excites me. I remember when we had like 3,000 and I, I, I thought, oh, that, this is great. You know, there's a nationals, there's 120 people out of meet. And now you just told me a state has 25 meets a year. That's incredible. Um, what are some of the things the EC is thinking about as we continue to grow? You know, we obviously have growing pains. We're trying to create avenues for every lifter to compete in. And ultimately we can't make everyone happy, right? Um, the pro series is, is a great foray into establishing another way that people can go and compete. So what are some other thoughts you guys have been having um, looking ahead to what things look like when we're at 25,000 members, when we're having 500 events a year? What are y'all talking about? What are y'all thinking about? Well, I, I, I talked about the future some in, in the NGB this year. And, and one of the things I said is that, that we have to think about and how we're going to continue to grow and what the infrastructure is required for that. And, and on the ground, what it basically means is that there are more meat directors to, to host meats. We're, we're not nearly touching the demand on, obviously. They're, they're probably at any given time in the United States, 100,000 power lifters, whether they're competing at any moment or not is not clear, but um, in multiple federations and in high schools and colleges. And, and we're drawing some of those um, and a significant portion. Um, other federations are drawing some of those, but the, the driver of growth really is the number of meats out there and the availability of meats. And, and, and here's, here's what Ryan, who has the difficulty sort of seeing beyond his own perspective on being kind, Ryan, I hope you listen. Um, because Ryan generates information without talking to people. I am one of those and I volunteered to talk to him. Um, but he said he didn't want to have me on. So, um, take that. Um, what people want is, is something that's available to them. And USA powerlifting really has always been about grassroots lifting. Um, certainly we, we have elite lifters and they're very important. They're our flagship in a lot of ways, but, um, in terms of people coming to want to experience powerlifting, that's local level. Um, and to do that, we need more meets. And obviously, as you stated, we need more volunteers and, and we need to stick to something that people believe in and, and not be wishy-washy about the things that, that have been the genesis of the organization. You know, obviously it would be easy to say, well, that's not very important anymore. So we're not doing that, but that's not why people came here. So sticking to our guns and following our mission and offering good meets and lots of them um, that are available is is what's going to make it go. Yeah, I agree completely. I've I've always believed that as well. Is um, power lifters are going to compete in a geographically close location where they can go have fun because ninety nine point nine percent of power lifters are not elite. Um, they're chasing personal records. They want to lift in front of their friends and family. They don't want to drive. They don't want to fly. 
local meats, like you said, our grassroots people is our bread and butter. And, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that's still the focus of our leadership. Of course, we've created the pro series, right? We're exploring international competition. We already have great traction there because of all the other international federations who align to our drug-free ethos. I think it's a good moment to transition. We've obviously started this year talking about uh, USA Powerlifting International. We, we, we've had some member nations join. USA Powerlifting Australia just had a successful meet. There's demand there, right, Larry? Um, and it's obviously a big journey ahead to create uh, what, what it is we're trying to create. And of course, that also evolves. We're, we're on the, the, uh, the cusp of something new. We're, we're trying to refine ideas. We're trying to have proofs of concept. Um, I think it's all very promising for as much hate as we get online from people, you know, the peanut gallery is always going to exist. That's fine. But I see a lot of really positive good here, especially for those of us that want to go compete internationally. Um, so what have you seen change from January to now on the growth of our international arm in the org? Well, the interesting thing, Ryan, is that we have individual members, people now in other countries can join USA Powerlifting as individual members. We have members in 60 countries right now. Um, and, and so wow. people, people wow. are interested in what we're doing here and what they want is the opportunity to, to compete sort of under our banner, but they also want the opportunity to come here and compete sometimes as well. And, and so that's something we're looking at and developing, but um, one of the things we're doing is we're sort of proceeding um, slowly and, and cautiously, I guess, in terms of adding countries and adding international meets, because um, the consequences of doing it wrong are fairly high. And, and those consequences include straying from our mission. Obviously, if we said we're open for business, everybody, y'all come on down and do whatever you want, there'd be a whole lot more of them. But we want them to do it the way we do it. Um, we want them to have the commitment to, to drug tested competition that we do. Um, and when they launch their own um, nationals and international opens, we want them to be viable meets where um, people can go to good places and have a good time with them as well. Um, powerlifting tourism is important to us, obviously. Getting to go Heck somewhere yeah. and, and, and lift somewhere where you want to go anyway um, is icing on the cake. So we're we're proceeding cautiously, but um, we we are moving. Um, and what we yeah. don't want to do is is do the wrong thing on the way out and and have it not work right and not be a good experience totally. for people. Yeah, it'll ramp up, and uh, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, right? And we've taken that step with USA Powerlifting Australia. USA Powerlifting um, South Korea is actually going to also host Ashton Ruska, which is exciting to hear. Um, it sounds like Asia is going to get another member nation. And hearing that we have representation from 60 countries is pretty great. Um, I hope we can start seeing them more here locally. You know, I'd love to see them here at the UBU meet I'm running at nationals. You know, we had a few um, Great Britain lifters there at the Arnold. That was all great. Um, so thanks for sharing that. And before we transition to, to another topic, I want to touch real quick on how things have progressed since we've split off from the IPF. You know, that was, uh, I forget exactly, late last year. And, and so we've had enough time to see how things have progressed. And I remember you made a statement that I believe has come true. You talked about um, 
the the new U the, the new USA affiliate essentially um, de, de facto making an organization just for the elite lifters to go to worlds, which is exactly what we didn't want to happen. And from what I've seen is they've created an organization that is now just for the elite to go to worlds. Do you think my observation is correct from what we've seen? Well, they've been more successful at that, I'll say. Um, but, you know, I think they have aspirations. And if you look at at their proposed schedule, they really want to um, move into a competitive mode with us at every level. Um, the question really is, is will they be successful at that? Um, and, you know, they're they're pitching things to an elite level lifters um, is, is in some ways been a blessing for us, both from a cost standpoint, but um, just from a standpoint of having to deal with the ongoing politics and BS and inequities that exist in the IPF. So um, in a lot of ways, they've taken uh, a burden from us. And, and I will say that in terms of not only the current U.S. affiliate, but um, U.S. lifters have the option to compete internationally um, through at least one other affiliate as well. So um, if if the IPF's objective really was to limit the exposure of Americans to the IPF, what they've really done is shoot themselves probably in both feet. Because now at least potentially there can be two times as many Americans as there used to be in the IPF. That's what we're seeing. Yeah. Two, two American contingencies are showing up. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're right. I, I also know for a fact that there's at least one other um, U.S. trust territory that wants to field American lifters. So, um, you know, if, come if one come all. Yeah. So, you know, the IPF in a lot of ways has demonstrated a significant bias against Americans over the years. And, and, you know, oh my if, God, if, if you, if you want to know um, what it's like to, to be seen as a second class citizen, um, you should go there and experience it yourself. But, um, you know, the, we warned them, Larry, we've been saying it for years. Those that know, know, and we, we I guess now people get to see it more yep. openly and in your face, not so subversively. Yep. Yep. There is a script there, I suspect. And it, it, it's not even clear to me that they're always conscious of it, but there is a script. And, and uh, I talked about sort of the, the decades of international powerlifting is, as everyone knows, international powerlifting started in the United States and um, it's not controlled in the United States, nor is there even a sort of a viable um, contingency or input into leadership anymore. And that's been true for an extended period of time. And, and you know, we have a sort of a proprietary sense of it here. We, we started this sport and we feel like we ought to have a, at least a, a degree of representation. Sounds a little bit like 1776, I suspect, but. Yeah, I love it, Larry. Great 1776 energy. And I, I've, I've actually never heard it put that way. We did invent powerlifting. Bob Peoples in the late 60s invented this crap. It's yeah. RPB. And uh, for now, you know, the, the battle goes on for independence from our European overlords. Um, and it is a long journey that you've been fighting your whole career. Don't forget everyone. Larry's really old. He's been doing this like 40 years. So don't doubt our president. He knows the stuff. He knows the game. Uh, let's talk pro series. I just got delivered 
a big fat check from FedEx. It is for uh, a pro athlete who's competing at the UBU Expo here in two weeks. Again, I'm the meet director, self-plug. I don't recommend it. It's very difficult, um, but people are going to have a great time at my meet. And yeah, I got a big fat check in my living room now. Um, how's the pro series going? We've given away a lot of money. We're going to give away more. You talked about the financial burden of being in the IPF gone. The outcome is us passing that money back to the pro athletes. Um, we've had, a, we've had, you know, seven months of the year progress. We've had some pro meets, some pro victories. What's been the feedback that you've seen so far from a leadership perspective? Well, I think people generally um, like the pro series, you know, obviously we've never done a pro series before and none of us have been in major league baseball or anything. So a lot of this is new for us. Um, and, and so we're looking at sort of a, a simplified system in terms of understanding it and, and participation and probably fewer stops on the pro series itself. Um, one of the things that's clear is, and, and it's always been clear, I guess, in terms of people's physiological limits, you can only compete so many times a year. I mean, it's not a 150 game season like baseball or 18 like football or 20 or whatever it turns out to be after the playoffs, people can't do that. Um, so we're really still working on and wrestling with what's the optimal number of pro meets that the majority of the, of the pro competitors can attend and, and do well at, I mean, going just to do a placeholder meet is not, you know, it doesn't further their goals and, and, and really going to a meet and basically doing openers because you had to show up, that's not helpful either. So we're sort of wrestling with the schedule and frequency issues um, with the eyes yeah, still of, of, of having a sustainable series. Yeah, it's a trial and error, right? Where we're starting something new, we're going to learn along the way. We've picked a sustainable purse um, that, can, that can grow. So that all makes sense to me. And, you know, personally, from my perspective, having, you know, witnessed the creation of it, us sharing it publicly, the evolution of people understanding it and competing, I think in the future, we can probably do a better job of communicating exactly how it works. I bet we can probably simplify it. Um, those are just my thoughts. You know, if someone has to email the national office or ask Josh Rohr, hey, what does this mean or how does it work? You know we can probably simplify it. And uh, do you think that's a part of the process? You talked about slimming down the number of competitions is, is simplifying the methods of becoming a pro and winning a pro card a part of the future too. Yes. You know, one of the things we, we think about, I, I mean, team sports don't necessarily apply in terms of a pro model, but individual sports track and field, for example, skiing, um, where they have series, those, those do apply. And the, the wrinkle for us is that we have multiple divisions and, um, how do you make a master's pro and how do you make them equitable is something we're wrestling with. Um, we're discussing at the moment, um, redoing the master's formula. Um, and one of the fact, one of the factors in that is that when the master's formulas were developed, people's competitive lifespan basically was much shorter than it is as a master, but we have master six people competing. And, and how do you, how do you compare somebody who's 70 or 80 years old to someone who's 40 or 50 years old equitably? And so we're looking at that. 
Um, and, and we obviously we have raw and equipped divisions and in golf, there's no raw and equipped division. There's only one division basically. So, um, how do we wrestle with juggling those two things as well as a issue for us? So, um, it's, it's more complicated than, than some other sports, I suspect, but in yeah, as much divisions as, definitely complicated. Yeah. In as much as we can make it simple enough so someone can go out there and look at the scores and say, yep, I understand what's going on. And, and, uh, somebody once told me, you know, powerlifting should be so that my grandmother can walk in the room and know what's going on. And, and that continues to be sort of a challenge for us. I think it's a challenge for the whole sport. Um, and it's been a major factor why we haven't gone mainstream, like, like a, a strong man, even you could argue like bodybuilding, right? How many members of the national physique committee are there? Many. many. Um, and, and I, I'm proud to say that I think we're leading the way in that effort to, to try to get, get the sport exposed to a very large group, make it accessible to everyone, not just the elite. Um, and so we're on that journey, right? I, I want to transition now to talk about doping. It's a major issue in all strength sports. Uh, in the last year, we've seen the IWs, um, the International Olympic Committee put continued pressure on the International Weightlifting Federation for their doping issues. Uh, we saw at the Olympics, the most recent Olympics, that they had a major, majorly reduced number of athletes that were allowed to compete. We've seen the board of the International Weightlifting Federation be pressured to completely remove their board of directors and replace them because doping is such a rampant issue. I also messaged you last week about some things I just discovered in the CrossFit community. They are having record drug test failures, Larry, and they're for new SARMs, stuff I've never heard of. Um, I've asked around to some folks I know in that's, you know, in the space of dope of doping users. I'm like, Hey, what do you know about this? Where's this from? And even they're scratching their head, like never heard of it, but it, you know, it's a SARM and it, it's either ending up in people's supplements, which I don't buy. Uh, or it is, uh, like many users, they think, and they can get away with it, but now they're getting caught. And, uh, I'm going to continue my rant here by saying, you know, I've been training at a, at a new gym in the last six months of the year. There's a lot of young people there. And, and I hate saying that because I'm 31. I feel like a young person, Larry, but deep down, I know I'm not right. I've been in gyms now for 18 years. And so I've seen the culture. I've been a part of it. I've seen those that come and go. And the vast majority that I'm seeing coming into the gym now, these young guys, even these girls, they're doping, man. What is going on in strength sports? Well, what are you thinking? I mean, we're, we're still catching dopers at the local level all the way up to nationals. Like, this seems to be getting worse from my perspective. Well, I guess with the lens of history, I guess I wouldn't say it's getting worse. Um, having lived through the seventies and, and bodybuilding. Yeah, um, of course, of course. And, and that was an era when anabolics were easily accessible. And, and so really you saw some of the th same things you're seeing now, what you're seeing is, is easy, accessible supply. Um, and you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry, um, the supplement industry is always looking for the next big thing and they're not regulated. So they produce something, they say it works and people go out and try it. And, and the, the problem basically, and it had always been his problem is that if you use something, um, 
you know, the people who suffer significant side effects and health problems and whatever, there's a lag between using it and actually having that happen. So what you don't see is somebody come in the gym and drop dead. And, and so it's not real. The consequences are not real. And so things are available to everybody. They don't know what the negative outcomes are. And so people give it a try. And people are always looking for an edge. And, and it's easy to find one. Um, when, they're, when they're my age, if they live to be my age, um, they'll probably regret that. But um, in the meanwhile, not so much. Um, and that's why it's important. It's incumbent on us to stay on top of it. And in a lot of ways, it's cultural, as, as I've said multiple times, developing a culture of people who believe that they should train in the most healthy way and without ergogenics, strength inducing substances, so that they can experience the health and long life that, that they, they can. Um, and to, to perpetuate that culture. That's, yeah. that's really what we're doing here. We're building a right. lifestyle. I love that. Um, what do you have to say to people who are continually, and I, and I, I say people, right? It's a, it's a narrow group. It, it's a minority, but you know, when we broke off from the IPF, it was sticking to our guns, to our ethos of, of a drug-free platform, testing at all levels. And with that, from the opposite end of the, the aisle, people have, uh, for lack of a better word, just shit on our process, calling it um, basically improper. Um, but we've made it clear multiple times why it is if someone is listening for the first time and, and you don't know, you know, we test at every level, we test 10% of the competition. We send it to, to labs that are certified. Um, and, and the one thing that we get flack for that shocks me is we, ha we have control over who we drug test. And, and from a layman's perspective, I think that sounds ideal. Why would I leave it to a third party who's clueless on our sport, clueless for the markers of, of what a doping user looks like, to let them choose or, you know, surrender all of our money and our power over who gets drug tested. I mean, I, I've said this before, Larry, you learned about anti-doping uh, and, and drug users from arguably the best resource in the history of doping in sports, right? Um, Vic, Victor Conti. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to remind everyone, Larry's learned from the best. Victor Conti was actually the guy Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe he was the one who helped Barry Bonds um, get away with doping for all those years, right? Well, a number of people. But then what I learned from him and, and, and when I approached him, what I basically said was, and I think it was in his, the period when he was trying to earn his pennies in heaven, he said, how do we catch dopers and when are they using and, and how are they using and how are they evading us? Um, the evading part in terms of the substances themselves is is much less of a problem than it ever has been because um, the labs are better and better, basically. And uh, the regulations around them used to be that you had to specify the substance. You are failing for Dianabol, basically. And if it wasn't Dianabol, but it was something kind of similar looking, um, that wasn't on the on the list of banned substances, and therefore it was allowed. Now it's basically anything that looks similar, analogs and things that are similar and things that act similar. So we're much better at catching people 
for a variety of things. Um, but what we really need to know is how do people use and how do they, um, what are the methods that they use to try to, to evade testing and to make the testing ineffective. And so those are the questions that I asked, um, yielding a sort of a different perspective. Um, some people say that in me testing is an intelligence test. Um, you only have to be stupid enough to get caught, basically. But as testing gets better and better, that's less and less true. The the tail of of the markers is longer and longer. Um, but how do you approach people in terms of when they're not competing? Um, that's something we are are continually looking at. And um, it, it's, it's been said that um, if you want to have a clean platform, you should basically just do out of meat testing. And the fallacy of that is you can basically the the IPF model, you reduce in meat testing and then do a, a few more very expensive out of meat tests. Problem with that is somebody gets OMT'd who's from a country or has a, a predisposition to use and they know they're not going to be tested again before the worlds. What do they do? They go on. Um, so that that logic breaks down. Um, our ethos is yeah, to test plan around it. Yep. The, the the our ethos is to test at every level, and and if you look at our drug testing positive results, you can see why. Um, you know, from a from an ethical standpoint, we think that we should have a fair platform at every level, and that the person who comes to their first local meet ought to have a fair shot too. But um, if you look at the results. A lot of our failures are locally. So if you don't test locally, all those people are out there and and we don't know who those people are. And they can then show up at nationals having benefited from being loaded for a long period of time and and win. And 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 maybe we catch them and probably, but maybe they fall just below the radar and we don't test them. And someone has come to nationals and taken something away from somebody um, unfairly. So yeah, we, we want to keep them out. We want to catch them coming up and we want to keep them clean at the top. That's, yeah. that's what and we're about. I'm glad you shared that. It's a nice reminder for why we're here, right? We're here for your mom who's, who decided to start lifting at 55 and wants to do her first meet and wants to show up and have fun and, and not lose to someone or have to compete against someone who's not on a fair and level playing field. Um, due to social media, Larry, I think most of our sport focuses on a select few people who are very strong and they forget that of the 100,000 powerlifters out there, you talked about 99,900 of them are not elite and they're showing up to meets and they're competing and they're getting confidence for the first time in their life. They're healing from past health issues. Um, they're reaching new heights athletically that they never achieved before. All these really, really positive outcomes from our sport can get crushed if we allow dopers um, to compete in our organization. And, and I'm speaking about us specifically, other organizations, whatever, they don't follow the same path we are on and that's fine. But in our organization specifically, and as a local meet director and state chair, nothing makes me happier when we catch someone who competed at a local meet. And this just happened here in Arizona, caught two people. It makes me happy because those people showed up um, dishonestly and took something from someone else. How many times have we seen at the Olympic level and in our sport, 
someone gets caught for doping after a world championship and the person who got silver gets a gold and bronze moves up to silver. And it, it, at that point, it's like, God, it hurts, right? A, a silver medal or um, excuse me, getting a gold medal after the fact and missing out on standing on the podium and hearing your national anthem is such a slap in the face. Right, Larry? Yeah. Yeah. It's not the same. I mean, it's nice to finally get your gold medal, but you know, if, if waiting eight years, 12 years, yeah. as some of them have in weightlifting, um, that's unfortunate for them. I mean, nobody knows their name anymore. On that topic of managing our own drug testing program, Larry, I have to imagine you have a few thoughts of your own on what you're seeing on uh, how the IPF has changed its own policies over the years and uh, been quite regressive on the drug testing front. So what, what exactly have you seen over the years? And yeah, give us a little insight into that. Sure. Um, initially, you know, as the IPF started to become more invested in drug testing, there were mandatory targets for drug testing in terms of percentages and in terms of records tested. Um, they further expanded that to, to really make a concerted effort to catch people instituting a, a targeted OMT program um, that really went in and looked at cleaning up nations. And since that time, however, it's deteriorated significantly and I think it really speaks to the ambivalence of the organization as a whole and, and probably, honestly, inter, any international federation that has a sort of an investment in the politics of looking clean. Yeah, let me stop you right there, Larry. Just I want to give people some context so they know you're not just making this shit up. Will you, will you tell our audience uh, the, the leadership positions you've had in the IPF over the years so they know you've seen this firsthand? just so we have that all out on the table. Sure. Um, I served on the IPF executive for a number of years, actually, and and I was on the IPF anti-doping commission. Um, and the, the anti-doping hearing panel for a period of time and served as the person who, also on the medical committee and therapeutic use exemption committee and that was initially the first screen when there was a positive test to, to look and see if that person did in fact have a therapeutic use exemption for that substance. Um, so I've served in a number of capacities. Um, perhaps the most important one of all of those was the Anti-Doping Commission. And, and we set policy for, for drug testing um, within the IPF and it, and assured its implementation, even including the the, the anti-doping plan, um, the annual anti-doping plan. So, um, so I have yeah, some experience. You have all of the some experience. I think you have all of the experience to to speak to this. So, thanks for for sharing. I'll let you continue uh, on your train of thought. Thank you. Sure. Over time, the, the IPF investment, um, really in terms of having a clean platform at every level of their own competition diminished. And, and to some degree, it was financial. Um, the, the motivation to test master two, three, and fours was less. Um, and, and now there is no mandate to test master two, three, and fours at all. 
um, that the sub juniors followed shortly thereafter. So the, the young people who are coming into the sport and are ultimately going to be elite lifters um, are basically not subject to testing either. But there are several other important things that that have to do with the politics of drug testing. Um, the IPF is is incredibly motivated to look like they're compliant with the World Anti-Doping Code and and look like an Olympic sport. The downside being that that's very costly, um, and so the the amount of testing is diminished. And in terms of the political ramifications, if you are trying to be an Olympic sport and you continue to have a number of drug test failures, there's a percentage, just three to six percent, depending on what you see, then you're you're deemed to be having a drug problem within your sport. And so it's much to the advantage of sporting federations not to have that number. But that really flies in the face of the real need to to catch people, basically. So there, there are mixed sentiments, basically, on that. Um, those mixed sentiments have played out in a number of ways. Um, one of them is that the IPF has been reluctant to prosecute um, some individuals and nations. And you'll remember, historically, a number of nations were suspended for doping violations above a certain threshold within that nation or within that nation's lifters. There are currently five countries that could be subject to national anti-doping suspensions, um, but they're not actually. And you got to wonder about that. I mean, if, if you wipe out a substantial portion of your, your um, country membership, or you have a number of countries that are suspended really is not a very positive look. So that's an issue and it's compounded by the issue of, of Russia right now, which is not eligible. So if you take away a bunch of your most significant countries, you really start to look a whole lot less like an international federation. And, and so the mixed sentiments are there. Um, the IPF has had that historically, though. And, and let me give you a couple of examples without being specific. Um, there was a, a well-known elite lifter um, who, who basically over a series of tests failed on biological markers. There are parameters that you have to fall within to be seen as a clean lifter or to be not judged to have an adverse finding. Um, the IPF chose not to, to act on that. Um, and, and so a person who met the criteria as defined by the WADA code and the international standards of testing was not suspended for that. Um, another example is, is a, uh, an individual who approached a member of the then anti-doping hearing panel and acknowledged that they were using an anabolic substance, that member of the anti-doping hearing panel did a sworn affidavit submitted to the IPF executive. I was on the executive then. Um, and the response was basically, we can't do anything about that because we can't prove it. But that's the definition of a non-analytical positive. So. Um, the, the difficulty is issues not related to drug testing intrude sometimes. And whenever you're a large political organization with objectives in, in terms of things like IOC recognition, those things provide pressure to 
not be as forthcoming or as active or as aggressive as you could be. So the same things basically, um, the same kind of mixed things go for the current affiliate. And let me be a little bit specific about that and not name names. Um, there's an individual who had a refusal to test currently suspended by USA powerlifting and was suspended when we were still the IPF affiliate who was entered at this moment in a current U S meet under that affiliate. Wow. Um, and I would tell you that the WADA code says that WADA signatory should be cognizant and recognize non-signatory drug testing. If their objective really is to do drug testing, basically. Another example, um, a sanction was awarded to a member of the current affiliate at a time when they were suspended by us for an anabolic failure. Um, wow. So makes you question some. Um, yeah. another, another instance is a person who had a failure for multiple substances is now an official in that organization. So um, their, their mission is not entirely clear. And the question has to be, where is the transparency and who is in charge of this and letting it occur? Um, yeah, you, you talk about mission as being unclear. I, I don't think from what I've seen publicly uh, from their official officers and their communication channels is, you know, they haven't, they don't really have a mission other than to be the new IPF affiliate in the United States and to field a team to those events. And, uh, you know, they don't talk about drug testing except in the context of, you know, putting our program to shame uh, in their eyes. Um, so, yeah, I think it does beg the question what their mission is. I, I would argue, I think we're the only organization in the country as committed to drug-free powerlifting as a mission. Um, I don't think anyone else comes close. You know, other people want to provide uh, a platform for anyone and everyone to compete at, regardless of whatever. You know, we, we've drawn a line in the sand for the last 30 plus years that uh, we're committed to a, a clean, fair level playing field at every level. And that is a powerful statement and a mission, right? And we have yet to see that from the affiliate, I think. Yep. I, I think that's true. And, you know, when you consider that if you have to go through a, an external third party to manage your testing and you don't post your testing, um, nobody knows basically, did you do it? Did you not do it? Um, it really all becomes a matter of rumor. Um, who did you test? How did you pick those people? Um, how many of them did you do? What happened to them? Um, you know, it, it sort of begs the question, is this really an effective drug testing program and really does it apply to everybody? Yeah, uh, totally. And, and I think it actually at the local level, you know, in their organization, they're actually passing on the burden of paying for those drug tests to the local lifter, or the local meat directors, you know, they're, they're charging $10 additional per entry into a meet, but not doing any drug testing locally. As far as I know, I don't want to speak in absolutes, but doing little to no drug testing at the local level while, while taxing meat directors, while taxing um, individual lifters to pay for those elite drug tests, you know? Oddly enough, they, they pay twice. 
10 bucks of their membership goes to the drug testing pool and 10 bucks of their meat entry does too. So. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. Um, anyway, you know, I don't want to spend too much time talking about them. Obviously we have a lot going on over here. Uh, that was really insightful what you shared about the IPF and, um, you know, the more that comes to light as time passes and, you know, I'm, I'm more, I'm noticing more things as, as we have exited, uh, at the world games, which was great to see powerlifting on that stage. You know, I noticed uh world record was broken three twice by one lifter and, you know, they didn't get drug tested. That's, that's really strange. Um, so who are they drug testing? I, I know obviously they're doing some out of meat testing, uh, or the member federations are, I should say, um, we've talked about this previously. Not everyone has an out of meat testing program. And those that do, do not test to the degree that, um, that we believe is, is just, uh, but don't you find it curious at the biggest platform of our sport, they didn't do drug testing on a world record or I don't know who they drug tested at the meet, you know? Well, the end of the day, we really don't know. And you know, the, we probably never will know. Um, yeah. And therein lies the problem, right? It should be open and honest and considering like I talked about earlier with what we're seeing with uh, Olympic weightlifting, it is highly likely they will not be in the next Olympics due to all of the doping failures and the leadership's lack of willingness to change that. You know, the IOC has laid it out pretty clear. You got to change your leadership. You have to make meaningful change or else you can't compete here. And we're seeing something very similar happen in our sport. And we're not even in the conversation. We're at the world games. You know, we have, they're, they're at the university cup. They're, they, they're doing things they believe can get them to IOC recognition, but this fundamental requirement of having a clean uh, platform doesn't seem to be happening. Right. And I I don't want to bore our listeners with any more drug test talk, but I I thought it was important to talk about because of the continued flack our system gets, though it is arguably the most successful in the sport of actually catching people and enforcing that drug-free ethos. Um, we're, we're getting that time, but you know, I know people like to listen to you talk because you give insights that they have never heard before. A lot of our organization, I think feels, I'm going to use these words, uh, in the dark sometimes, you know, they, they, they see us do some press releases. Um, they, they see what the hive mind and, and the peanut gallery has to say, but they, they only rarely get to hear it from your mouth on this podcast or at the NGB meeting. What are some things you want to share with the community? Uh, Give them some insights on what you're working on in the background, you know, give them a little taste of exciting things to come. Do you have anything you want to share? Well, nothing specific other than what we've talked about, but um, we, we are continually looking at how to make the sport friendlier and more open, um, more accessible. um, As I said, to look at places that are fun for people to go um, and, and really, um, now that we're able to have a community again, we want to have a community. And and when I started um, with the ADFPA, well, 40 years ago, um, <laughs> it, it really was a, a family reunion every year. And we want to get back to that. We, we want um, people yes. to come and see their friends and and find this as a reasonable destination to go to and to, to continue to build that community. Um, and at the same time, I would tell you that um, 
you know, you touched on organizations that don't have our philosophy and um, we have a good relationship with a number of those. Um, we sort of agree to disagree. And, and at the end of the, the day, um, we're, we're all strength athletes and really, um, if someone chooses to take a different path, you know, so be it long as they don't do it here, we're good with it. And we would encourage you to be supportive of, of people who are in all walks of life, um, powerlifting wise, because those are the people who, as you said, are going to come and spot you when you're in the gym and, um, are going to come and volunteer at your meet and spot and load and all of those things. You know, having a, a community outside of just our narrow focus is important as well. Yeah, we see it here in Arizona. I'm great friends with other um, federation presidents and meet directors. Um, trained at the same gyms with them. Uh, and that's our powerlifting community, right? And one thing I've been grateful for throughout this whole IPF exodus thing is that dark cloud that hung over us uh, for decades of USA powerlifting isn't lifter friendly. It was because we were bound by those IPF rules of association, you know, and, and that's gone and it's transitioned to this new affiliate who we've already seen uh, forcing their members to renounce their membership here because of that affiliation rule. And, and I think that's unfortunate. It, you know, I believe in a free market and lifters should be able to lift wherever they want. And you've said that we're open for business. We'll welcome you back with open arms. Um, but their perspective, the IPF is, you know, the association rule, right? The Ed Cone rule. You can't be around this person if they failed at a, a drug test, et cetera, et cetera. And I am grateful that is no longer, at least it, it being associated with, with USA powerlifting is, is going away. Right. And, and people are saying, Oh, USA powerlifting is my friends and family. They're at my gym. Um, they're not quote unquote elitists. That was the IPF. Uh, so that's one thing I've noticed here locally and I think is happening throughout the country too. Yeah. There's, there's always a danger, Ryan, if, if you force people to choose the danger really is that they may, and they may not choose your way. And so time will tell. Yeah, It will. Well, Larry, I, I like to keep these kind of short. I think we're at like 40, 40 ish minutes, 45 minutes. Thank you for your time. We'll do another one of these soon. If anyone has any questions, you can email PR at usapowerlifting.com. Uh, thanks for listening. And Larry, thanks for your time. Enjoy the Alaskan weather. I'll see you when it's uh, winter time down here in Phoenix. Uh, and everyone for listening, thanks for joining. We'll see you at the next meet and we wish you the best in strength. Cheers.